Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin today in our health lead with a stunning rise in new COVID-19 cases among children in the United States, a 20, uh, 250% jump from just five weeks ago. Kids making up one in four new COVID cases in the United States. Hospitalizations among children also seeing an uptick, a 12% increase in just one week. Still, we should underline severe infection in children remains rare. Less than 2% of kids infected with COVID end up in the hospital. This is a pandemic that remains largely of the unvaccinated and largely of adults. 13 Miami-Dade County school employees have died in the past month of COVID, all unvaccinated. And now, as CNN's Nick Watt reports, a new study shows when severe breakthrough cases do happen, they tend to be in older, sicker people. Misinformation, fear-mongering swirl around breakthrough infections, the vaccinated who still catch COVID. The science shows the vaccine will not necessarily protect you. It's not protecting many people. So not true. Here's a box fresh fact. Those very rare breakthrough cases who suffer severe symptoms tend to be older. 73 on average, and have multiple other conditions like diabetes or heart disease, according to the CDC. And unvaccinated adults are 17 times more likely to be hospitalized than the fully vaccinated. I think we also need to have perspective and realize that the people who are hospitalized, the people who are suffering severe outcomes are the unvaccinated. In Miami-Dade County, Florida, 13 unvaccinated public school staff have now died since mid-August. It represents, quite frankly, the danger of disinformation and misinformation, which is so common these days. More than 60% of Americans have now had at least one vaccine shot. The average daily death toll keeps climbing, but average new cases dropped 4% since last week. It's regional, as always, Kentucky just had its worst week ever, more than 30,000 new infections. We've called in FEMA strike teams, the National Guard. We've deployed nursing students all over the state. We could have prevented this by simply everybody going in and getting that vaccine. And as the new school year ramps up across the country, more than a quarter of all new COVID-19 cases are now in kids. We relax restrictions, and this virus is really going for the people who are not vaccinated. And among those people are children who don't qualify for the vaccine. Once again, a judge in Florida just ruled in favor of school mask mandates, despite the mask-phobic, still bullish governor's law that bans the mandates. I'm confident we'll end up winning um, on appeal uh, in that case. Positive note. Less than 2% of pediatric cases end up in the hospital, but there are now nearly 100,000 COVID patients of all ages in the hospital right now, fighting for their lives. 
Finally, a little bit of good news from Macy's. They say that their Thanksgiving Day Parade will be back this year, almost as it was pre-pandemic. There will be people on the streets, spectators, the exact details, how that'll work, still being ironed out. There will be fewer participants, and pretty much all of them are going to have to be vaccinated and masked. Jake. All right, Nick Watt, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Joining us to discuss CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, let's start with this new data. Um, one in four new COVID cases in the U.S. is now in a child, but severe disease among children remains uncommon. What do parents need to know? Should they consider not sending kids to school? What's your best advice? Well, you know, overall, as, as you just heard from Nick's piece, you know, the numbers are going way up. Children are still less likely to get severely ill. The problem is that you have a relative, you know, risk that's lower, obviously, in kids, but the absolute numbers are so high that as you increase the overall viral spread, uh, there's going to be more and more kids who are going to be hospitalized, more and more kids who sadly will die of this. Um, so that you just have to keep in mind. It, it, you, both things can be true. It can be far less risky in kids, but if the numbers are that high, it, you, the absolute numbers of kids affected will go up. L- let me show you, Jake, just in terms of going to school. You and I have talked about this. You did the town hall last year about going back to school pre-vaccines. We're having this conversation. Right now, the modeling studies will say if you do nothing, within the next three months, about 75% of kids uh, in K-12 through will be infected, talking about 50 million people sort of in that category. If you do just masking, you bring it down as low as 24%. If you do masking and regular testing, uh, down to 13%. So, which in many cases, those schools would actually be safer areas in terms of viral transmission than the surrounding community in which that school is located. So it is possible. Even before the vaccine, it was possible. Uh, basic public health measures do work. They've shown this by comparing school districts where you're doing them to school districts where you're not, and it makes a huge difference. So, yeah, I think people can go back, but the parents got to ask these questions. Masking plus testing, the, sa- the best way, the safest way uh, to have kids go back to school. On Sunday, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci said there is not data to show that the cases are more severe now than before among children. Um, so what do you attribute this rise to? Yeah, so first of all, it's interesting to sort of say, like, what makes a virus more severe? Or does it, does it uh, sort of uh, attach to more receptors? Uh, does it cause some other problem with different organ systems? And when you start to look at that data, which we have, you, don't, you can't say that the Delta variant is doing something different fundamentally than the variants before it. Um, what, what it seems to really be a problem of more than anything else is just that this is a far more contagious virus. It sort of outruns the other viruses out there. So it'll go, it'll stick to these receptors. It may stick longer. Uh, it may spread more easily if someone does have the virus in their own body. All those things. Does it necessarily cause more severe disease? I don't think you can say that. But again, it gets back to just the t- statistics of it. More and more people even if 98% of them with comes to kids are not going to get that sick or severely sick if you have thousands and thousands of hundreds of thousands of people who are in the hospital, uh, a, a larger number of them will end up being kids. A new uh, preprint study from the CDC finds when there are these severe breakthrough cases, people who have been vaccinated still uh, being able to contract COVID, it, they tend to be in older, sicker people. Uh, what else stands out to you in that study? I think this is a really important study. You know, I mean, this idea, first of all, in the context of boosters, this has been a big conversation, who should have their immunity boosted and why? 
uh, they say, well, we're going to cut down on breakthrough infections. Well, okay, but people who are vaccinated may have breakthrough infections and have no symptoms. Is that who we should be boosting? Well, no, and not necessarily. Let's, so let's figure out who is likely to get sick, and that's what this study really focuses on. If you have a severely symptomatic breakthrough infection, People tend to be older, average age of 73, as Nick mentioned, and with typically three uh, coexisting sort of illnesses or, or risk factors. So those are the people who are most at risk. Think of it like this, Jake. A severe flu-like illness in an older person is going to be a much bigger deal than that illness in, in you, someone who's much younger. So, you know, it, it, will, it, will a severe disease like that push somebody over the edge, even if they're vaccinated? if they're older and have these risk factors versus somebody else? I think the answer is clearly yes. And I think some of that rationale will probably help drive this decision about boosters that we're going to hear from the FDA and CDC as well. And tomorrow, uh, President Biden is expected to announce uh, mandates, testing and other things in order to continue to combat the pandemic um, with an emphasis on schools and private businesses. What more uh, can, what more should this administration do? Well, I, th- I, th- I really do think at this point the idea of mandatory vaccinations in the areas where you can do that is, is important. I mean, you know, a lot of private organizations have taken that on. The federal government can take that on as well with regard to transportation, for example, uh, airline travel, trains, things like that. That might be an area where you could increase overall vaccination rates, which make a difference. Funding for schools, a lot of that was already given as part of the, the relief plan, but to make sure schools have enough for testing, for masks, also ventilation. I think one of the big things, I think as well, Jake, just from a communication standpoint, we, I think, have arrived at this place now in the pandemic where it's clear that this, this virus is here to stay. Endemic is the word that they call it. Um, so what does that mean? And what does success mean then? Uh, achieving zero COVID is probably not arguably a, a goal that is uh, achievable. So, so what is success? Uh, how, what, are, what are the things that people should be striving for? I think it's been a little messy so far in terms of defining that. I hope it's something that the president does. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Good to see you as always. As President Biden fights to turn the tide on COVID again, he's already running out of time to deliver on a couple of big ticket promises on Capitol Hill. Plus, not enough food, not enough oxygen, leaking ceilings. Nurses now sharing what it was really like inside the Louisiana warehouse where seven seniors died during Hurricane Ida. Stay with us. Our politics lead top advisors say that President Biden is preparing for a major speech to be delivered at the White House tomorrow on new ways to combat the coronavirus pandemic. On Capitol Hill, however, two key parts of Biden's domestic agenda are on the clock, as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports. The president is trying to project optimism, but with just three weeks until this self-imposed deadline for both the infrastructure and the $3.5 trillion budget deals, Progressive and moderate Democrats are now issuing ultimatums towards one another. We're going to build back better. We have to. We must. We will. President Biden closing in on a critical period for his domestic agenda as his party stares down a major math problem. We have to talk about what does it take? Where would you cut? Child care? Family medical leave paid for? Universal pre-K. 
Democratic leaders are vowing to move ahead with a $3.5 trillion tax and spending package after one of the party's most pivotal swing votes, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, warned the price tag is too high. We're moving full speed ahead. We are moving forward on this bill. Senator Manchin has said privately he could accept a number closer to $1.5 trillion. But that's a fraction of what the progressive wing of his party says is necessary to transform the nation's education, health care, and climate structure. The idea of a $1.5 trillion price tag being sufficient to accomplish those goals for the people uh, is fanciful. Some House Democrats are even warning they could sink the $1 trillion infrastructure bill already passed by the Senate if they're not on board with the larger package. I, as well as many, many members of the Progressive Caucus, simply will not vote for Senator Manchin's infrastructure bill unless it is tied together with the Build Back Better Act. Budget Chairman Senator Bernie Sanders adding $3.5 trillion is the floor, not the ceiling, to address the challenges facing the U.S. To my mind, this bill, that $3.5 trillion, is already the result of a major, major compromise. President Biden telling CNN he is confident he can get Manchin on board eventually. How deep is his resistance, do you think, to the Joe, reconciliation Joe, at bill? the end, has always been there. He's always been with me. I think we can work something out, and I look forward to speaking with him. Are you so President Biden says he looks forward to speaking to Senator Manchin, Jake. And of course, we should know it's not just what's uh, the price tag of this bill that is going to be a very critical discussion that Democrats are having, sometimes in public, clearly, over the next few weeks. It's also what is going to go inside of this massive bill. And of course, with Democrats, uh, with their margins as slim as they are, really every member has sway, not just Senator Joe Manchin. Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in CNN's Ryan Nobles live on Capitol Hill. Ryan. Senate Democrats have zero margin for error here. So what happens next? Well, essentially, Jake, we are in a high-profile steering contest between the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and those moderates who are uncomfortable with spending that much money. And to Caitlin's point, there is a level of mutually assured destruction between both sides because the moderates clearly want to see that $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure package passed into law. But the progressives are going to be unwilling to go along with that plan unless that $3.5 trillion infra or, or the uh, human infrastructure package, the budget bill goes along with it. So what's going to happen now over the next two weeks, and it is a pretty tight timeline, is going to be some intense behind-the-scenes negotiations between the moderates and the progressives to come to a place where all sides feel comfortable voting for both packages. Now, this is not going to be easy because they seem to be so far apart in that bottom-line number. Uh, Joe Manchin saying he's only going to be comfortable with something that he believes the government can pay for in the range of one to one point five trillion, whereas uh, Bernie Sanders has said that three point five trillion is the baseline. So, Jake, we're going to have to see how this all plays out over the next couple of weeks. The timeline is tight. And because the margins are so tight, just one Democrat senator or even member of the House could blow the entire thing up. Jake. All right. Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill. Thanks. After the Supreme Court failed to block it, there's a new fight. Uh, to stop the toughest abortion ban in the country. Stay with us. In our politics lead today, leaders of abortion clinics and abortion rights activists in Texas are doing everything they can to continue 
providing services in spite of Texas's new abortion ban. They are now turning to state courts to try to fight this controversial law, the strictest abortion ban in the country, one that seems to go against the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade ruling. CNN's Paula Reed uh, joins us now. And Paula, t- tell us about how the leaders of these clinics and, and uh, abortion rights activists plan on, on fighting uh, this law. Well, as you just noted, they really see state courts right now as being key to try to stop this law. And they have been successful in getting some temporary restraining orders against specific anti-abortion activists. But those restraining orders, they are temporary and they are specific to an individual or an entity. And that's because this law was designed to make it very difficult for a court to block it. That is a feature, not a bug, because historically the courts have blocked laws Uh, having strict abortion restrictions. They've blocked them by trying to prevent the people from enforcing them. So if it's a government official that's in charge of implementing punishment, the court would just block that official. But here, this law deputizes any citizen to go ahead and bring a civil action against any woman, anyone who helps a woman get an abortion after six weeks. So you no longer have the traditional ways to fight these laws. And look, this, this is the product of a long game that anti-abortion activists have been playing. They've really seized on loopholes in the law, on these specific procedural nuances. And last week we saw five Supreme Court justices let them do that. So now we see clinics in Texas, they're saying that they're no longer going to perform abortions after six weeks. So what we're also seeing is activists on the ground trying to help women get access to abortion services in other states. And that is not prohibited by this law. We also see the Biden administration under a lot of pressure to try to do something to stop this law. Now, we've heard the attorney general say he's going to do everything that he can. He specifically pointed to trying to enforce a law that protects abortion clinics from threats at their entrances or threats against women. But, Jake, it's just not clear that that particular type of action will bring the kind of case that is needed to stop this law. But for abortion rights activists, for the people that run the clinics, this strategy, this doesn't seem like a sustainable long-term strategy. No. I mean, clearly this has been a long game for both sides, but this has been, a lot of people make the comparison to whack-a-mole. It's just not sustainable, and it's unclear how they're really going to get that test case unless there is a clinic, unless there is a practitioner who is willing to violate the law and then take all of those incoming lawsuits to get that true test case that could potentially make it all the way up, possibly, to the Supreme Court. All right, Paula Reed, thank you so much. Uh, An attorney and associate professor of medical social sciences at Northwestern University, Professor uh, Katie Watson joins me now. Professor Watson, what do you think of this strategy being employed in Texas to fight this this abortion ban, this law, going case by case through state courts, is this the most effective strategy? Well, as you've already established, it's unsustainable, and I think the whack-a-mole analogy is correct. It's the um, best strategy at the moment, but it is not a long-term strategy. Law professor Carter Sneed wrote about the Supreme Court decision, quote, the Texas strategy was ingenious in that it evaded the usual pre-enforcement injunction by a federal court because neither the state officials nor the private citizens sued in the case were involved in the enforcement of the law. The Supreme Court lacked the power to intervene. Um, It does seem as though a lot of abortion rights activists um, were relying on the U.S. Supreme Court to issue a stay as they have done in the past. Um, Was that a, do you agree? And was that a faulty strategy? 
Well, I disagree with Professor Sneed that the court lacked the authority to issue the injunction. I agree with Justice Sotomayor in her dissent where she said a majority of justices have opted to bury their heads in the sand when confronted with an application to enjoin a flagrantly unconstitutional law engineered to prohibit women from exercising their constitutional rights. The governor of Texas, uh, Greg Abbott, he was asked about how this law would force uh, the victims, the survivors of rape and incest, to carry uh, a child to term, if not terminated before six weeks. Uh, Take a listen. It doesn't require that at all, because uh, obviously uh, it provides uh, at least six weeks uh, for a person uh, to be able to uh, get an abortion. And so for one, it doesn't provide that. That said, however, let's make something very clear. Rape is a crime. And Texas will work tirelessly to make sure that we eliminate all rapists from the streets of Texas. I'm wondering what your reaction is to those comments and and how you think they square with the real world experiences of rape survivors and, and, and women when they find out that they're pregnant. Well, I have two responses. And the first is, of course, those who oppose abortion rights uh, try to impose waiting periods, suggesting women haven't thought long enough about it. And yet when women don't act uh, quickly, they are punished in Texas. So someone who's been traumatized by a rape and has to later learn whether they are pregnant and then make a decision, it's incredibly punitive to um, think they should have to rush that. Um, Secondly, I think our Focus on rape and incest is important, but that's a minority of abortion seekers. In my work, I talk about ordinary abortion. The majority of women and people capable of pregnancy seeking abortion who are absolutely entitled to follow their conscience and do what's best and right for them and their family. And I think it's just as unjust to them as it is to people who did not consent to sex. The Attorney General Merrick Garland has pledged to try to protect abortion clinics and those who use uh, those facilities for for health care, using the FACE Act, that's a 1990s era law uh, that prohibits making threats uh, against individuals seeking uh, reproductive health services uh, and against individuals obstructing clinic entrances. Do you think that uh, is uh, legitimate? Will that work? Well, there, I think Attorney General Garland is referring to the physical attacks or obstruction on clinics, and that was what the drafters of the um, FACE Act were envisioning. However, the Texas legislature has been very creative in drafting this statute, and I think the federal opposition to it should be equally creative. Um, Americans expect the federal government to intervene when states try to rob them of their constitutional rights. We have a long history of that in the South. Um, And so what FACE prohibits is uh, private citizens blocking someone trying to enter a clinic. And I would argue that's what the Texas statute does. It puts a wall between a pregnant person and the pastor who would tell them where to go get an abortion, the friend who wanted to drive them to have the abortion, the family member or insurance company or abortion fund that wanted to give them the money to do the procedure, and the doctor who wanted to deliver safe medical care and makes it impossible for her to get into the clinic. 
That's not what the drafters of FACE were envisioning, but it's exactly the outcome they were trying to prevent, private citizens blocking their neighbors from exercising their constitutional rights. That would be a creative application of FACE, but I think this is the year for creativity and adapting the use of these older statutes to the modern anti-choice harassment, shaming, and blocking techniques. All right, Professor Katie Watson, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. California's governor hoping to survive a critical recall election with the help of some big names, one of which rhymes with Mamala. That's next. In our politics lead with less than a week before he faces the challenge of his political life, the recall election, California Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom is getting a little help from his friends. Former President Barack Obama is expected to appear in an ad supporting the governor. And this afternoon, Vice President Kamala Harris was back in the Bay Area to campaign with Newsom. CNN's Kyung La attended the rally, which was near Oakland and just ended. And, and Kyung, Vice President Harris is just one of many prominent Democratic women trying to help Newsom stay in office. The women's vote there is key for him. Uh, absolutely key. And the governor knows that if he can win women, the wind is at his back. Now, the vice president opened her remarks here by saying it is good to be home. And she is home to help her longtime political brother, Governor Gavin Newsom, stay on the job. Oh, my God. <laughs> I am here for Mamala Kamala. She is I, I am very, very excited to see her. The return of Oakland's beloved Democratic daughter is the big draw for this Bay Area crowd. Your hometown hero, the vice president. Vice President Kamala Harris energizing the progressive female base at home. We fight for working people. We fight for organized labor. We fight for dreamers. We fight for women. We fight for voting rights. And we stand as Democrats saying we are proud to do all of that and more. We all love Kamala Harris. She has a long history here and has done so much for us. And having her come, I think, is really going to energize um, people to get out the vote. And I hope that they do. <laughs> when we fight, we win. With less than a week to go before Election Day, the vice president is the woman leading the cavalry for California Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom. From Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar to Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. The senator saying it may be a California ballot, but this is about national women's issues. These fights, they're not just in Texas, Florida, South Dakota. These fights have come to California. Are you ready to fight? This is part of the governor's strategy to nationalize the recall in this final week, drawing a sharp contrast with Republican challenger Larry Elder, an outspoken radio host with conservative views on race and gender. Racial justice is on the ballot. Economic justice is on the ballot. Social justice is on the ballot. Environmental justice is on the ballot. Women's rights are on the ballot. 
There's a reason Newsom is focusing on the issues impacting women in his party. In 2018, some of Newsom's most enthusiastic voters were women, helping him win the governor's mansion. Thank you, California. 64% of women voted for Newsom then. Defeating this Republican recall. In 2021, a recent poll shows 66% of women say they will vote to keep Newsom in office. Among them, Lisa Malone. I've never attended a rally before, but I felt like this is very important to attend this one. Why now? Just in light of what's happening in Texas and, and in light of what's happening to our state. But Larry Elder says the Democrats' focus on national issues is Newsom avoiding state problems. As you know, they are scared to death, which is why all these politicians from outside California are now weighing in, including Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Nancy Pelosi, Senator Elizabeth Warren. Let him defend his record on anything. Now, we should point out that the vice president did echo a lot of the national themes that the Newsom campaign has focused on. And the governor, in fact, joked about the vice president being here, Jake, saying that he would keep his remarks brief because he knew who the crowd was here to really see. Jake. All right. Kyung Law, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN chief political correspondent Dana Bash. And Dana, this is a high, high stakes for, for Harris as well as for Governor Newsom. It, it's true because... This is one of the first times, if not the first time, that it is such a high-profile uh, surrogacy move that she's made, and it matters because she is a California woman. She is still beloved there, which is why, among Democrats, which is why they brought her in. And the fact that they are making this such a national message, as Kyung has been reporting, it is fascinating because the whole goal is to move Democratic voters from apathy to passion. And this is how they think they're going to do it. And you just released a, a new podcast focused on a story that was one of my first big stories to cover on a national level. It's called Total Recall, California's Political Circus. Uh, it's about the first recall in 2003, or the first one in modern, in modern history, mm -hmm. 2003. You interviewed the only guy to ever do this successfully, mm -hmm. and we don't know what Larry Alder or whoever else is going to be able to do, uh, former Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, does he think that voters are paying enough attention this time around or as much attention as they did to his recall? Uh, certainly not as much as they did to his recall. You, when, when he pushed you, out Gray Davis. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you were there. There were He was the biggest movie star in the world. There were, you know, hundreds of cameras following him around. It's not anything like that at all. I should say that he is aggressively neutral when it comes to the candidates, but he definitely has an opinion about the atmosphere. Take a listen. You mentioned the debate of the current recall, mm -hmm. but there were no cameras there. How concerned are you that people just don't care, as you said, and there won't be a lot of people who go and vote? What, what are you thinking about? With well, I, th I think that people do care, but they sure didn't care about the clowns up there on stage uh, having a debate. You know, that, 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 that it was like the media is not stupid. The media go and say, look, if we get you know, millions of requests to cover the thing. Of course we go there with the camera. Mm -hmm. But there was no one interested. Mm -hmm. So this is, I think there's people interested that want to go and unseat uh, Newsom. They will be motivated and they will say, we got to get rid of him and they will come out and vote. And then there's the Democrats that maybe take this a little bit too relaxed. 
and maybe not come out, and that's going to be, that could be dangerous for Newsom if that is the case. So he is friends with Gavin Newsom, and he says he also has relationships with uh, some of the candidates who want to unseat him. But his point there was that, and he said flatly, that the Newsom campaign and Newsom himself didn't take this recall seriously enough until recently. Now they've changed, obviously. But it took a while for them to get there. It was nice of him to dress up for the interview. <laughs> I appreciate it. Dana Bash, thanks so much. Remember to listen to Dana's podcast, Total Recall, California's Political Circus. You can download it wherever you get your podcasts, and I will be downloading it on my drive home tonight, Dana. Congratulations. Some people who lost everything in Ida are bracing for what could be another devastating forecast. Stay with us. International lead one week after the remnants of Hurricane Ida caused devastating flooding in the northeastern United States, killing at least 52 people. That same waterlogged region is getting another storm tonight, one that could only make matters worse, stirring up strong winds, even possibly tornadoes. CNN meteorologist Tom Sater's cracking it all for us. And Tom, where could we see the most severe weather in the hours ahead? Well, it looks like, Jake, it's going to fall in the same areas that uh, we had the catastrophic flooding with Ida. It's going to be in the northeast. Now, the line right now is still back in the Ohio Valley, but there's a lot of embedded thunderstorms with a lot of lightning. So damaging winds will accompany this. Even a few tornadoes are possible. Had a few warnings in the Carolinas. But as this band moves in, it's thin. However, it takes a while for the environment to like, recuperate. The ground is saturated. There is debris everywhere. So every stream and tributary is going to kind of impede the flow of a normal flow with thunderstorms. But also just think about the neighborhoods and those that are ha- having to gut their homes from the, you know, the, the molded sheetrock to the you know, damaged furniture. That alone, lining neighborhoods, could cause a little deviation in how these floodwaters move through. We're not talking 10, 15, 17 inches of rainfall, just a couple. But because there is a threat of severe weather, too, these thunderstorms could unleash that rainfall in a short amount of time. So the flash flood watch is in effect. It does not include New York City. It's mainly northern New Jersey, eastern Pennsylvania, and parts of southern New York. But if you just want to be careful, and I know anxiety is high, nerves are still rattled, just do not go out tonight, uh, let's say between 10 and 1 in the morning. That's for New York. It's going to start in D.C. around 7 to 8 o'clock. It'll be Philadelphia around uh, 9 to 10, and then later on it points to the north, uh, Boston in the early morning hours. So again, if you have a storm drain in your area, sure, they may have been cleared, but you may want to go and check them because a lot of times they clog up again in the latter hours of that rainfall. I do want to point this out, though, Jake, just moments ago, National Hurricane Center declares this cluster a tropical depression. If there is enough time and space, it'll become a tropical storm and its name will be Mindy. That's the next storm on the list. They're going to get a lot of rainfall, too, but you're not going to have the images in New York that we had with Ida, thank goodness. All right, meteorologist Tom Sater, thanks so much. Uh, Speaking of Ida in Louisiana, the state's health department has revoked the licenses of seven nursing homes that sent elderly residents to a warehouse to shelter from Hurricane Ida. Seven of those residents died, and health officials say conditions inside the makeshift shelter were unsafe and unsanitary. CNN's Ryan Young is live near that warehouse in Independence, Louisiana. Ryan, nurses who worked at the facility say they, they were never told that the evacuation site was a warehouse. Yeah, and that's really tough to hear, Jake. And if you 
think about this, the details of this. They're quite scary, especially for the family members who didn't know their loved ones would end up here. You're talking about seven facilities and 850 people. We wanted to drive here. It's like 50 miles outside of New Orleans just to see it for ourselves. And look at this warehouse. There's so much trash that's piled outside here. There's still two wheelchairs that remain outside, and we see some medical waste that has been left behind. You think about the sweltering heat that we were experiencing right after that hurricane, and imagine those 850 people inside here begging for help. More than 60 calls to 911 where people just wanting some sort of assistance. You still see some of the medical supplies that have been left outside. Now, we did get an account sort of of what was left from 911. Not the actual audio, but here's some of the logs. In one instance where a caller says that a diabetic patient needed emergency transport because they had not eaten due to not having any more supplies. On August 28th, an operator wrote in a log about someone reporting a patient gasping and having trouble breathing. And then three hours later, another caller reported a person that was having seizures. When you put all this together, Jake, and you get this look and standing outside and you realize what this building is made of and the heat these people were probably experiencing, and then the staff that was here and didn't have an idea that this is where they would fall back to, you understand there was a lot of trouble in this situation. All right, Ryan Young in Independence, Louisiana, thank you so much. Appreciate it. From Guantanamo Bay to positions in the new Taliban government, the former detainees now in charge. That's next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 